Now it seems to me that almost every Christian agrees that the Holy Spirit plays a major role in the book of Acts. Almost every Christian agrees about that. But that is where the agreement ends and disagreement begins because there are so many varying opinions about the Holy Spirit. And it seems to me it is actually very possible and not just possible, it is actually very often the case that many people view the Holy Spirit's person and works in very unhealthy ways. Uh, for example, uh, some people set the Spirit, His person and His works, in opposition to Scripture, as if to say that if you give uh, too much attention to Scripture, you quench the Spirit. And if you are really filled with the Spirit, then you follow His leading and be freed from the, the shackle that is Scripture's. And at other times, uh, people think about the Holy Spirit with only a very little connection, if at all, to the one whose spirit is the Holy Spirit. In other words, people think about the Holy Spirit's person and works without thinking much about the Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit he is. And so when we think about the Holy Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit in these unhealthy ways, uh, the mindset that develops is that the Holy Spirit comes really to impart a charismatic quality to the believer. And that means experiencing abundant signs and miracles that animate, that excite, and maybe even validate the Christian life. And so it is often the case that in these approaches and understanding of the Holy Spirit, the very genuineness and the maturity of the Christian life are called into question unless there are charismatic signs. But it seems to me that is a very unhealthy and even unbiblical way of understanding the Holy Spirit's person and works because we need to understand the Spirit's person and works in relation to Scripture and in relation to Jesus. So the first thing I'd like to consider with you this morning is the Holy Spirit and proclamation. The Holy Spirit and proclamation. Now, as you know, the title of this book is Acts. And because Acts is the title, it naturally brings to the forefront the various deeds and events of the apostles' ministry. This book certainly focuses on what the apostles did, their Acts. Uh, but we should not miss the fact that this book of Acts contains 19 speeches or sermons. Uh, there are eight sermons by Peter, one each by Stephen and James, and nine by the Apostle Paul. So that when we add up all these 19 sermons, these 19 sermons make up about 25% of acts by word count. And we need to realize that sermons have a significant place and role in the book of Acts. 
And when we think about that, we realize immediately, of course, it has to be that way because you remember what Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 8. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You see, the Lord Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit will come and with his coming, with his enabling, the disciples will be the witnesses of Jesus. That is to say, the Holy Spirit comes not for the purpose of imparting charismatic quality or experience to the believer's life, but the Holy Spirit comes to bear witness of Christ. In other words, we need to stop thinking so much in terms of our subjective experience when we think about the Holy Spirit as we need to think more about the objective reality. The Holy Spirit comes not to make our lives have charismatic character, but so that he might bear witness to Christ. And we already saw this last week, didn't we, in chapter 2, verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And in verse 11, the crowd that were gathered, they were, mar- they were amazed. And they were saying, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, what do you suppose the mighty works of God refer to? I suppose it could have been many things, but most certainly the mighty works of God that they heard being proclaimed most certainly refer to the immediate context of what we read in Acts chapters 1 and 2, namely, these people with various tongues that the Spirit enabled them to speak, they were declaring Jesus' resurrection, His ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And so once again, the Spirit comes, we see, in order that the Savior and His saving works might be proclaimed. And so we need to take care not not to understand the Spirit's personal works in terms of our subjective personal experience. Now, to be sure, every believer who has the Spirit dwelling in them take on a character of the Holy Spirit. But that character, when we read the New Testament, is mainly holiness and being shaped in the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is certainly true. But the first thing that we need to recognize is that in Acts, in the book of Acts, and I would say in the rest of the New Testament, the presence and the power of the Spirit are seen in the proclamation of God's work in Christ. Where the Spirit is present, Jesus is proclaimed and exalted. So that's the first thing we need to recognize. Spirit and proclamation. The Spirit is not sent so that our lives might be filled with excitement or be animated, as true as that may be in some cases. But the Spirit is given to us so that we might know Jesus. 
And that brings us to the second thing from this passage is to see the Holy Spirit and Scripture in relation to each other. Spirit and Scripture. Now, in the, in the first 13 verses, we saw how the Holy Spirit filled the disciples and they began to speak in other tongues. And once again, we, uh, we talked about this last week. In the book of Acts and in the New Testament as whole, when people spoke in tongues, they were not nonsensical gibberish sound as it is often understood today. They were fully formed human language, foreign languages that these speakers had no previous experience or knowledge of. And so these people were gathered for the Feast of Pentecost, a great day of celebration. And they had traveled to Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate this important feast. And these Jews that had traveled to Jerusalem, they, they were born and they grew up outside of Jerusalem, speaking as their language, not Hebrew or Aramaic, but Greek, uh, Persian, Latin. And when they came to Jerusalem, they came and they heard the disciples of Christ speaking in their own native language the mighty works of God. And those who had the ears to hear heard what was being proclaimed. But there were some there who had no idea what was happening, and they were mocking them. And they said, they are filled with new wine. You know what they're saying? They're drunk. And now Peter answers back. And he says, it is not the wine talking, but it is the Spirit. And notice how in chapter 2, verse 12, the people who had the ears to hear, they were amazed and they were perplexed. They were saying to one another, what does this mean? And starting with verse 14, Peter begins to tell them what it exactly means. And notice, this is where Peter's first sermon begins. And this first sermon preached by Peter, as is true of all his subsequent sermons, is proclaiming Christ in the power of the Spirit from Scriptures. Now, we are only going to pay attention to the very first part of Peter's first sermon, and we are going to leave the rest of it until next week. But if we had uh, read the entire sermon today, we would, have, we would have seen that Peter first quotes Joel chapter 2 to prove that the coming of the Spirit means what he states in verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 to demonstrate the scriptures bore witness to Jesus and that when we call on the name of the Lord Jesus, we are saved. And after that, Peter turns to Psalm 16. And from Psalm 16, Peter demonstrates Jesus' resurrection. After that, Peter cites Psalm 110 to declare the heavenly reign of Christ. And there's something here that we need to take note. 
you realize the crowd that had gathered in Jerusalem, they had, of course, heard all these passages before. Because after all, they were a part of a culture that emphasized scriptures. And these passages that Peter cited and preached preached from, they are well-known passages. And yet there was something different about the way that Peter preached these scriptures. Because the Holy Spirit enabled Peter to preach the scripture's true sense. You see, the Jewish leaders all read these passages without ever seeing Jesus in them. And they all did what many people do today. They read scriptures to find applications. They read scriptures to figure out their place in life. And they read scriptures to learn what scripture says to them, about them, about what they need to do. But certainly, scriptures have plenty to say to us about who we are and what we need to believe and what we need to do. But the sad thing is that people end, begin and end there. Let me give you an example. I don't know if my guess is you have all heard a version of this. You know, the famous and well-known story of David and Goliath. Often if you grew up in Sunday school settings, the application of the passage is just like David with courage in the Lord slayed his giant, you can do it too. What is your giant? Trust in God, you can slay your giant. That's often where scripture interpretation begins and ends because we are looking for applications about what Scripture has to say about us, who we are, what we are, what we need to do. But if we really understood that passage correctly, we would see that we are not David. We are the soldiers of Israel cowering in fear, who desperately need to be rescued, who are utterly uh, impotent, and unable to help themselves. What that passage teaches us is not that we can go slay our giant, but that Jesus has come and slay the giant for us. And so there is a difference between reading a passage of Scripture in order to learn about who we are, what we are, what we have to do, and seeing the true sense of Scripture. And the Jewish leaders, they, and the Jewish people, they knew these passages. But they never got to the true sense of it because they read these passages without ever seeing Jesus. But the Holy Spirit enabled Peter to see the Scripture's true sense. And we see here that the Holy Spirit gives his scriptures to us because it desires us to meet Jesus in the scriptures that he gives to his people. And so let me say this right now, that the Holy Spirit and scripture should never be uh, set at odds. You do not quench the spirit 
when you devote your lives to scriptures, because in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit himself has inspired and given to his people, in the very scriptures, the Holy Spirit speaks to draw us close to Jesus, to give us understanding and insight about Jesus. And so I need to say this clearly so that you can understand without any confusion. Where the Spirit is present, God's people love His Word. The Scripture and Spirit are never at odds. And so that's how we need to understand the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And finally, I want to look at the person and the work of the Spirit in connection to Jesus. Now notice how Peter's first answer to the mocking crowd, those who are saying, you know, they're just drunk. His answer to them comes from Joel chapter 2. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And what's really important for us to see is that Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 and the promise that God will pour out his spirit, enabling the young and the old men and women to prophesy, see visions, and dream dreams as an explanation and the reason why these disciples were speaking in tongues. In other words, the speaking of various tongues fulfill God's promise to pour out His Spirit. Because speaking in tongues, as we read earlier, how these uh, gathered crowd of people were hearing, telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, this is the very fulfillment of God's promise to make His people prophesy see visions and dreams, because these are all Old Testament vocabularies for declaring God's word and works. And so the central message here is God's lavish gift that gives privileged standing to all people who draw near God through Jesus Christ, not just a few, but the many, regardless of gender, age, or social standing, all who would draw near God through Jesus Christ receive the comfort and restoration that God promised to Joel. Because if you read the book of Joel, and perhaps this is something that you can do this afternoon, only chapters, the original context of Joel is God's heavy judgment that came upon Israel because of Israel's sin. And so the prevailing mood of the book of Joel is the sense of God's people realizing that because of their sin, they've lost everything. And so the prevailing sense of Joel is the nation grieving that they have lost everything because of their sin and that they have squandered their glorious purpose and joy. So if I can put it in these terms, 
The prevailing mood of the book of Joel is the nation crying out with pain and sorrow. What have we done? How could we be so foolish? We have lost everything. That is the prevailing mood of the book of Joel. Uh, Perhaps we've seen that. You know, people who... Sometimes people waste their whole lives and come to a, a too late realization at the end of their lives. And as they look back upon their lives, they realize, what have I done? I've wasted my life. I've lost everything. How could I have been so foolish? So that's what God's people are struggling with in the book of Joel. But as we read on that book of Joel, we read that the God of grace will not let sin have the last word. So in Joel chapter 2, verse 25, the Lord says, I will restore to you the years, the years that were lost in sin and in judgment. God says to them, you've lost everything. But as you turn to me, as you return to me, I will restore the years that you have lost. And subsequently following that, in verse 28, you see in Joel chapter 2, 25, the Lord in grace, he says, I will restore to you the years. And then a few verses later in verse 28 comes the promise that Peter quotes in his sermon. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You see, that was God's gracious promise to his people who came to realize too late that they are paying a terrible price for their arrogance, their stubbornness, their rebellion, and their sin, who are now, who have nothing left but to cry out with pain and sorrow, what have we done? We've lost everything. How could we have been so stupid? But the Lord says, return to me. I will restore to you the years that you have lost. And how is he going to do that? In the last days. I will pour out my spirit. That's God's promise and that's God's sign when he's going to fulfill this gracious promise. And so it is the spirit of God that restores his people. And it is the spirit of God who restores to his people the years lost to sin. And it's the spirit of God who restores to his people the holy calling that was squandered. And so men and women, old and new, even servants, they receive a new calling and gift to know the Lord, to have his word in their heart and mouth. And in Joel chapter 2, the promise was, it shall come to pass afterward. And when Peter quotes that passage, 
He actually changes a few words because he understands the promises have been fulfilled. So Joel says, it shall come to pass afterwards. But Peter quotes that passage and it says, in the last days it shall be. And what he is indicating is that the last days are upon us. And that this is the last days when God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. Because Jesus is God's promise of comfort and restoration. And so it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you see how this was a fitting message for the crowd gathered in Jerusalem? You see, many of these people had participated in rejecting God's Son. And because they rejected God's Son, consequently, they rejected God's purpose for them. And humanly speaking, what was left except to grieve over their sin? And humanly speaking, the only thing they had left to say was, what have we done? How could we have done this? We've lost everything. But God's grace, God's grace restores us when sin, where sin leaves us broken. And this is the beautiful thing. Even when we have wrecked our lives with sin, there is salvation in Jesus Christ. And these people, the very people who had rejected the Lord Jesus and rejected God's purpose, humanly speaking, there was nothing left for them to say and do except with sorrow cry out, what have we done? In fact, we will hear the very thing as Peter ends his sermon. But where sin leaves us broken and wrecked, there is salvation, there is restoration. And God's grace will restore more than we have lost in sin. Don't we all know people in our lives who have given their lives in pursuit of unrighteousness, foolishness, and sin. And perhaps they realize late in their lives with sorrow and regret, what have we done? What hope is there for me? Or perhaps you are heartbroken over the people in, in your life that's living in that way, not knowing where that life leads. What can we tell them? we can tell them that even though sin will leave them broken and shattered, there is hope, there is grace in Jesus. That even though we have once lived as God's enemies, that we have been transformed and we can be transformed to know God intimately and lovingly. And that our squandered lives can be given over to the glorious calling of declaring the great things that God has done. That was God's promise and invitation to the crowd 
gathered in Jerusalem that day. And that is God's promise and invitation for you and for me. Sin. And there's no other way. Sin will always leave us broken and shattered. And so that it will bring us inevitably to the place of deep sorrow, regret, and shame as we realize just what we have done and say, how, how could we have been so foolish? I am ruined. There is no hope for me. But here's the grace of God. I will restore to you the years that you have lost. I will give you a new calling. And that is God's promise to you, and that is God's invitation for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we rejoice as we hear the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ, how there is hope even for those who have wrecked their lives with disobedience, with idolatry, with pride, with rebellion. They have wrecked their lives with no way to save themselves, but you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice in him and we celebrate his gospel. And I pray, O oh Lord, that as we consider the great things that Jesus has done for us, that your comfort and your grace may be lavishly and generously be poured out upon your people. Lord, if there is anyone in this place, here or away, who are heartbroken over what sin has done in their lives, who remember with shame and regret their wasted years and lost joy, I pray that you would restore to them the years that they have lost that you will renew for them a new and glorious life of knowing you and your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.